Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome to the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. And today, some positive resolutions that could come from the G20. They're not going to, of course, but this is our ideas of what they could come up with. Uh, The G20 is meeting, or perhaps by the time you've got around to listening to this, they've already met in Hamburg. Last time, the outcomes were all pretty negative. I mean, they they dropped the pledge to reject protectionism. Well, maybe that one's not so bad, depending on your point of view. But they also watered down a commitment to climate change just before Donald Trump pulled out of the Paris Agreement. And they agreed to stop competitive currency devaluation, somehow. But could they do better this time? Well, Steve Keen and I have four motions that we think should be passed. Uh, Two from me, two from Steve. So let's start with mine, Steve. I want a rule that is going to penalise nations that don't meet the obligations of the Paris Climate Accord. Uh, Maybe an extra 10% tariff on all imports from that country, or maybe a a global carbon trading scheme that somehow doesn't give credit to those people who choose not to be in that scheme. Something anyway has to be done if we believe that climate is such a big issue. Yeah, well, the trouble is a lot of the politicians don't believe that. They're ignorant about it, courtesy of what's been spouted on the topic by the big oil and so on. Um, but, yeah, that's, you need some sort of penalty. And like you could actually do something and saying, OK, we're going to put a, a tariff on you if you if you don't. We'll put a tariff. We're going to put a carbon equivalent tariff on you. Uh, but, of course, the trouble is that's not going to be agreed, mate. That's That one's just not going to get through at all because, for obvious reasons, the most likely country to pull out the USA uh, would never agree to that at the G20. And these things are always, unfortunately, informal, uh, which is why I think it's a nice idea, but not one that's going to get any, any traction. If we actually want to be practical about this, you know, what's likely to get through the G20? What could you achieve? And uh, you've got to put something forward which looks like it's going to be a win for everybody to mm. actually get everybody to vote for it. This one, unfortunately, is clearly um, targeted at a, at a loss and it's possible for them to... I mean, this is good. This could apply to my proposals as well, frankly. But uh, you've well, got to have so, something so, which is seen as positive. If if the G twenty is just an organisation that everyone has to agree on on everything, then everything is going to be uh, washed down to the point of being uh, completely useless. Particularly uh, with Donald Trump now in the United States. I mean, maybe we should look at it as mm. the G nineteen then, and we just exclude America from <laughs> it, uh, which, which might be the easiest solution to all of this. And then the rest of the world agrees on stuff. Um, but I mean, it, it, uh, you know it. You, you've got to you've got to put forward proposals that yeah, uh, something that, that yeah. are, and if you say well it's got to be one that's going to be agreed by everybody then you know that well uh, Donald Trump's never going to agree on anything that's going to be to do to do with climate change so yeah. what about I mean, what, you, about, you, what you, about stuff that the yeah. other nineteen could agree on I mean surely yeah. that they'd be there saying yes we've got to we've got to do something uh, uh, to try and tackle this issue and some sort of penalty has to be has to be the way forward but is a penalty the right way or it I mean, have we given up on the idea of carbon trading schemes? Have they been shown not to work? I'm not a great fan of them for a simple reason. I think I think they're useful, but they're just the typical attitude economists always have. That it's a problem that something you can fix by adding a market. Um, and this is the whole idea that the reason we have a pollution is externalities. You have one of the costs of production is generating carbon dioxide 
because because you've got to burn coal or burn oil to actually harness the energy they've got to to turn the machines to produce the output you want to make. Um, and if you're not actually paying for dumping that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, then they think, well, if you put a price on that, then we can actually uh, balance the whole thing. We get back to equilibrium again, supply calls demand and everything if it works perfectly. And my reason for being a critic of that attitude is that first of all it sees the ecology as being contained by the economy now it's the other way around the economy is is a entity within the ecology with which when we live and a belief that you can actually manage the bigger system which is ecological using the rules that apply to the smaller system which is the market system is inane it's just the usual story economists think they they've got the center of the universe they've them they've they're closer to being a centre of a, of, a, of a black hole uh, in terms of their understanding of how the world operates. So I don't see a carbon tax as being even philosophically the right way, a carbon price, a carbon trading is, is even philosophically the right way to control it. But um, you could, as you say, you could actually have the G19 agreeing that put on tariffs on any country that's that's not uh, not doing its bit for carbon, reducing carbon emission into the planet. That would work. Because in that case, you know, Donald Trump, if he leaves, could suddenly find himself facing a tariff. Of course, that would unfortunately ignite his political base. He's, he's back in the, you know, America's been wronged again type stuff. So uh, it mm. might be a nice way of resolving that particular issue. But boy, it would make the international politics of Donald, uh, Donald J. Trump even more exciting. Yeah. Well, so be it. Um, <laughs> you and G19's got to be a nice, <laughs> nice ring to it. Maybe, maybe we could make it the G20. We could find somebody yeah. else to, to step up to the plate, I'm sure. Uh, true place, the US. Yeah, I think Iceland would, Iceland would be in there. Well, there we are. Definitely. Uh, problem solved. Uh, yeah. uh, maybe Ecuador. Yeah, yeah. North Korea, perhaps. North Korea. There we are. Sorry. Absolutely. Well, you know, maybe maybe if they're welcomed in, maybe they won't have quite such a chip on their shoulder, perhaps. Uh, and, Possibly. Uh, you know, mm. and if you just tell Kim Jong-un he's looking well, not short and stubby, um, then, you know, he mm. might he, he might turn out to be Very quite... Very svelte physique, I thought. Yeah. <laughs> he might yeah. turn out to be quite a nice guy after all. Uh, one of yours is to introduce a, a penalty on uh, nations that are running a trade surplus. Yeah, okay, this, this is a bit more elaborated because, I mean, if you look at a huge amount of what happens with the, the global economy, one of the major issues... That, that that's causing this hassle. The fact we use a, a national currency for international trade, and one of Keynes's proposals at the Bretton Woods Agreement uh, conference back in '44 was that the the, the world establish the body called the Bancor, which was a currency to be issued by the International Monetary Fund in proportion to the size of the various economies that were part of the global trading system, and then countries when you wanted to buy, you know, if America wanted to buy goods from the UK, then the American company would need to purchase Bancors uh, from its central bank and use those Bancors to transfer to the company in the UK, which would then hand those bank calls over to the central bank and get pounds back in return for it. Uh, but of course, in that situation, it would be possible if, if the UK was running a trade deficit, it'd be running out of bank calls. If America's running a trade deficit, it'd be running out of bank calls. And that would then force them to apply to have their currency devalued relative to uh, the bank calls. So it was a fixed, a fixed uh, exchange rate system, not the floating one we have right now, but fixed in terms of an internationally created currency. Yeah. And one of Keynes's other ideas which was very much based on the experience of what happened during the Second World, the Great Depression, uh, was to put penalties, uh, and penalties actually denominated in bancors, on countries that ran substantial trade surpluses. Because if you're running a trade surplus, as I've explained a few times here, that's one of ways of creating your domestic money and outsourcing the creation to the rest of the world. 
So Germany, is when, by running its huge trade surplus, is actually having the rest of the world create its money for it, which means it can have you know, government surpluses and declining private debt at the same time because it's got this huge trade surplus, so the rest of the world is paying for the Germans to print euros. Now, uh, Keynes's idea was after a certain level of, of surpluses, uh, you then get taxed on those surpluses in bankors, and he would use that money for development. Now, what we could do now is say, well, we can use that that money for uh, from bankors not only for development but also for uh, carbon uh, re- carbon reduction schemes, improving um, sure. you know, renewable technology in developing countries and deficit countries alike. And that is it's, it's, the trouble is it's it's a really good idea to run a surplus, a trade surplus for a national country. It's a brilliant idea, and and this is something that's been a debating point in economics for four or five hundred years. Because before the classical school, which is where Adam Smith uh, comes from, came along, and uh, there was and before the physiocrats as well, there was a school called the mercantilists, and their whole objective was to run a trade surplus so that you could accumulate gold, which was because then that was the international, you know, currency and that the international bank hall, and so that. They were always trying to put tariffs on overseas goods and uh, and and get as, as as little imported as possible and exported as much as possible. And of course, it was a, a zero sum game, so it's never going to be a, a successful battle. And a lot of economists, part of the reason for the development of economics was people's frustration with this ambition to accumulate gold. And so, some of the arguments were made about inflation for those that accumulate too much gold through trade surpluses it's all going to disappear anyway but also the, the a whole lot of the mythology of economics was around defeating this mercantilist argument which predated the development of economic theory itself but frankly when you look at in real the real world if you're in a trade surplus it's going to do very well for you thanks very much right. and this also by the way puts me out of out of um, sync with the modern monetary theory crowd um, so you, you want to have some sort of control and Keynes's wisdom here was to say well let's make this control related to the international currency so after you agree to an international exchange system which means that it's part of that exchange system if you're in a surplus you're going to get taxed and your money is going to be used to develop things in other countries and and that was mean that that was a, a more effective means of controlling this tendency to want to become mercantilist of course because it's a zero-sum game uh, obviously not everybody can say yes we're going yeah, to be we're, 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 we're going to be uh, in a trade surplus and it is better for the world if it balances itself out i guess the utopia which of course utopia doesn't exist is that everyone has an even level of trade relatively and the thing is again the neoclassical theory again said look don't worry when we go from floating exchange fixed exchange rates to floating exchange rates exchange rate variations will wipe out all that stuff and there won't be sustained trade surpluses yeah right well that didn't <laughs> How happen long we had now 40 bloody years 40 bloody years <laughs> I mean, this is the sort of stuff which I'm getting angry. This is good fun, uh, which gets me pissed off with mainstream economists and some of my non-Orthodox friends as well. They don't understand that in a dynamic system, you don't have to reach equilibrium ever. Uh, if you get an advantage out of a trade surplus, which means you can invest more, maybe from, you know, you're getting the, the domestic money creation being enhanced by a, a surplus coming in. You invest more, you can t- get you can, technology can remain ahead of the yep. rest of the world. Then you do not have price effects domestically or internationally 
internationally, wiping that advantage out. So countries like Japan, Germany, or Japan more so than Germany, but they've been running surpluses for four or five decades. Right. And the whole idea that the price system is going to get rid of this, well, give me a break. We'll grow up and learn something about dynamics. So what you're talking about really is it's almost like a corporate tax being applied on a country and rather than profit, it's just on, yeah. on, on the volume. So it, uh, you and, know. And, and then we, yeah, we, we can do that quite easily because we would have all the figures in terms of bank calls, who's running a surplus, who's running a deficit. And the bank calls themselves, of course, they're an electronic idea that there wouldn't be physical notes called bank calls. There would be, they would have been stored at the International Monetary Fund, and therefore you'd know whose account's going up, whose account's going down. Do those going down face the need potentially to devalue their currency? This is Keynes's mm. concept of a fixed exchange rate with an adjustment mechanism built in, uh, and they could apply to have their uh, currency devalued relative to bank calls, and that would... You know, of course, that reduces the effective wealth of the country involved, but it also means they stop losing bank calls ultimately when their economy adjusts. Um, but the ones running surpluses, well, bang, you know, we've got the money here. We're going to do, allocate that X amount of money to this country on condition that the money is used for development projects or for greenhouse gas uh, abatement, uh, solar energy, et cetera, et cetera. It'd be quite easy to do it. So there's two resolutions there, really, possibly for the G19 mm. rather than the G20, because I'm not quite sure mm. uh, how replacing the US dollar is that, is that uh, central currency well, would this, go down with the this, US, or maybe they would like this, it. This, this is one where I think you potentially, because old, old Donald was banging on about the, you know, with all these countries being not nice to us and running. Yeah, yeah. Actually, you know, it's got the most to gain, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, he, they, if you want to get rid of the American trade deficit, Stop the American dollar being the currency of international trade. Yeah. All right. So we've got two there. That's not the only solution, but it's part of it. Yeah. So two, yeah. two resolutions there yep. then. Create the bank or whatever we're mm-hmm. going to call it. And, uh, and then yep. uh, the second one is, yes, uh, we uh, have penalties or tax for trade surplus, and that money then gets passed on to help developing nations or it goes into greenhouse gas emissions schemes. Yep. That makes, makes a great deal of sense. And then on top of it, so three we've got now, if you include mine, which I feel is a bit pathetic after you've just changed the whole uh, monetary <laughs> system of the world. But uh, let's, let's ta- tax uh, people who don't uh, follow the Paris Climate Accord. Okay, one final one then. Um, a global minimum wage. Let's stop exploitation in developing nations. Let's penalise companies that pay below that wage in whichever country they're operating in the same way that you take action against a, a company that's flaunting laws in your own country. Yep, I mean, that's one of, the, that's, that's one of those halcyon things that would be lovely to achieve. My, my little take on that is that um, and this is all coming out of the work I'm doing in energy right now. Fundamentally, what uh, what what income is is a flow of energy that you can use for yep. doing useful work. And if you look at the flow of energy, and, and 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 that energy fundamentally comes out of out of machinery. It's what we've harnessed. With, that's why we use so much uh, fossil fuels because you can harness those far more effectively than we can, you know, whacking whacking bits and pieces of trees into a into a furnace and lighting that. Um, so we've We've got this huge flow of energy, and when you look at it, uh, a lot, the vast majority on the, well, not the vast majority, a lot of people on the planet get more than enough energy that way to be able to have a moderately comfortable lifestyle, but a substantial proportion don't as well. So what you could work out is what's the level of energy uh, per year that someone needs to be able to have a sustainable lifestyle, uh, and and they say, okay, that's the minimum wage. Right now, that would that that would then, you know, as well as saying that's what we want to 
achieve in terms of a monetary level. It's also saying, what does that amount to? And that's the thing that you end up wanting to, you know, provide electrification systems, solar systems throughout rural Africa, rural India, and so on, uh, to give people that level of effective energy harnessing that means that they end up being able to have something resembling a comfortable lifestyle compared to what they've got right now, which is areas of abject poverty. So rather than trying to bomb our way to peace in uh, in Syria and places like that, we'd be trying to land, um, you know, uh, solar energy uh, systems in those same places to... Uh or would we? So I, I to take, get around the, so, the issues. So take so take your point. So you're saying mm. yes, it's going to be hugely expensive to provide the energy that the equal energy needs to somebody in uh, mm. uh, sub-Saharan Africa, for, for example. It would be mm. massively expensive, and therefore, if you were to say, well, that's the minimum wage. So if they produce anything, um, uh, then the minimum wage is going to be so horrendously high. Nobody's going to want to buy from those countries, though, are they? I mean, rather than people. Oh simply- no, the, 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 the cost the, the cost is still tri- trivially low. I mean, when you if you, it, the, the real issue is is providing some means by which they can produce. Uh, you know, for their own needs and to some extent for in, for the international trade. And if you have the the level of poverty that applies in these countries and the lack of infrastructure, they're never going to be able to get there. Um, to me, but what I'm what I'm with all this work in energy is having a fairly radical impact on my, I'm thinking on a whole range of issues in mm. economics. But one of them would come back to this whole thing: if you want a global minimum wage in a realistic sense, then to enable that to be sustainable for a lot of these countries, you've got to increase the capacity to actually harness the energy. And it isn't just a case of saying, "Here's a global minimum wage; let's penalise companies that don't pay it." Uh, we've got to generate the capacity in those countries to generate the energy they need to actually make that realistic. And uh, but you can't just do it by the wages. You've got you've got to do it by providing the physical capacity to generate that energy and harness it properly right. as well. Well, that could so that could work with your idea then, couldn't it? That you know, if you had this uh, central currency and you were penalising countries that had a big t- a trade surplus, then that's how you could finance it. You could finance that money to make the uh, these other countries more energy efficient, so their minimum wage, hmm. in effect comes down as they become more energy efficient, which makes them more efficient uh, at producing goods or more cost-effective at producing goods, uh, which helps to improve their trade position. Yeah, and this is actually, if you actually take a look at The Economist today, I just noticed one of my Twitter feed. I'm just going to see if I can find it on the computer right now. Uh, but The Economist today came out saying that Germany's trade surpluses are a problem for the rest of the world, and they're dead right. I haven't actually read the article. I'm not behind the paywall for The Economist as yet. But... Um, the lead problem is why Germany's current account surplus is bad for the world economy. Well, in fact, as we went through that Tom Dick Harry exercise, you know, whatever, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Um, it is actually Tom that's trying to spend less money. And as it does, it actually causes global GDP to fall. So we have a whole range of things that are done right now that are making the world work less effectively. And what we're suggesting here with our little ideas for the, um, for the G20 is ideas that would um, – make rather than having people saving require them to spend and that actually has benefits for everybody not just for the spender and you know this one on minimum wage um donald trump might be behind this as well because he's got a minimum wage in the united states he'd see uh you know this is a way of um you know helping level the playing field as far as he's yeah concerned. and he, he might get some of his base back that are getting peeved with his tweets or uh, even more importantly him driving across uh, uh greens on a on a motorized uh, golf buggy which is probably the biggest sin he's committed 
according to part of his base in the last uh, last uh, six months. Well, look, there we are. Four ideas, four resolutions for the G20. The only problem with them is that uh, we weren't invited, so we're not there to... Uh, Indeed. Uh, <laughs> but maybe there's still a chance. They could listen to this podcast tonight. Uh, there's still an opportunity maybe to sneak it into tomorrow's agenda. Uh, good to talk, Steve. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see you soon. I'll practice my handshakes, just in case. (laughs) Okay, bye. Uh, Next time, creating money. We've talked about it in the past. Central banks have been doing a a lot of it lately with quantitative easing. But what's the difference between creating money and just running a government deficit? Is one worse for the economy than the other? Making money and monetizing debt. That's next time on the Debunking Economics Podcast. I'm Phil Dobby. That was Professor Steve Keen. We'll see you next time. 